I'm not a hippie from way back who can tell you all about the summer of love, or a tougher than nails warden keeping order amongst the inmates, nor am I a renowned folk rocker with a twangy guitar. I'm just a schnook. Hi fellow schnooks and happy spring. As I record this, it is the middle of May 2019. Wow. And this is Autobiography of a Schnook, Chapter 9. And I'm Sean, and I'm a schnook. I'm a schnook. And it's been over a month since the last episode. Wow, I apologize for the wait, everybody. I just, uh, or if you don't like this podcast, then you're welcome for the wait. I just had a lot going on lately and just haven't really had time to sit down and record something, but hey, here I am. Here I am. I hope you've been well. I've just had Mother's Day, obviously, and on Mother's Day, this year actually, I think it was because of my brother's work schedule, we actually did our Mother's Day stuff on Saturday instead of Sunday, which is good because, I don't know, I don't like to do something big on a Sunday and then have to worry about going to work the next day, you know. But I went down to my parents' house. They live outside of Joliet. And we went to Al's Steakhouse in Joliet, which you heard me uh, remark about before. I got to say, it was actually not bad. Uh, I had barbecue chicken and twice-baked potato. And the twice-baked potato was really, really good. Not as good as the ones my wife makes from time to time. But they were still very good. Chicken was okay. Not life-changing. But it was done pretty well. And all the servers, they were all male. They were all waiters, which is new. Um, Used to be that Al's Steakhouse, all the servers were, well, old ladies. I don't know what happened. (laughs) But all the servers this time were young men. And I was bracing myself because my mother admittedly is prejudiced against male waitstaff. She doesn't like waiters. And she admits that she has no idea why. She just doesn't like them. But it turned out that the waiter we had, oh, I forgot his name, but he was really, really good. And my mom raved about him. And my brother, he chipped in part of the bill and left the tip. And he tipped about 30%. And my parents lose their heads if you go a penny over 20% usually. But this time, though, my mother said, you know, that's good. He deserves it. He's really good. So I was happy with that. I was like, oh, good job, mom. (laughs) So yeah, I had dinner with uh, my brother and my mom and my dad. And so that was my mother's day. Well, spent some time at their house too, of course, you know, because I'm a good son. I want to spend time visiting. Man, what else has happened since? I think right after chapter eight was released, I went to Milwaukee for Midwest Gaming Classic, which is primarily a video game convention. Uh, There's also a part of the convention for people who are into other games like board games, card games, role-playing games, and things like that. But I was there with my friend Jim. Uh, We were there to plug our podcast, Pie Factory Podcast. And I don't know what to make of the weekend. I mean, for me, it just felt way too busy. I spent most of the time at our table in the vendor hall and didn't really do a heck of a lot, but it still somehow wore me out. I think part of me just didn't want to leave the table unattended for too long because I didn't feel that would have been right for Jim 
or our friend Clark, who was also sharing the table with us. He, uh, he's a homebrew game developer. He makes games for the Atari 7800, my personal favorite video game console, by the way. I didn't want to leave Jim or Clark alone or Jim's daughter who was helping us out. I felt that would have been unfair. I mean, the thing is like they, they would have told me, no, do what you do what you want. We can hold down the floor, but I'd still feel bad about it. And also I realized, man, it's expensive to have a table at a convention because you got to pay for the admission, of course. Well, the admission is covered in the vendor fee, but still, uh, you got to pay for that. You got to pay if you need an electrical outlet which we did for our purposes, we were actually giving away a really nice prize. There's a a video game controller designer down in Georgia who does business under the name Ed Ladin, and he makes some amazing controllers for classic consoles. Uh, That's edladin.com. I'll put a link to that in the online bibliography. And we were giving away one of his controllers. It was really sweet. It was basically a contest. You had to come over to our table and play Robotron 2084 for the Atari 7800 in challenge mode. In challenge mode, it's the hardest difficulty setting, and you only get one life. You don't get any bonus lives or anything. So basically, the deal was, you get the highest score, you take the controller home with you. And it's a really, really nice controller worth $180. We had a pretty intense competition going on toward the end. Oh my god, it was insane. (laughs) And it was so much fun to watch that. Oh, and after the show, my wife is not into video games at all. Uh, Lisa just, she doesn't do video games. She was going to come with me to uh, Milwaukee, and uh, but she changed her mind. She said, no, I'm going to stay home because we have another trip coming up as soon as you get back from Milwaukee. And I don't want to have to come home and then rush to get back out the next day. But I did get to do something really cool. The uh, Midwest Gaming Classic was at the... Uh, Wisconsin Center in downtown Milwaukee. And just a couple of blocks away from there is the Bronze Fawns. That's the Statue of the Fawns, which I believe is to scale with Henry Winkler. So you actually get to see, with without having to meet Henry Winkler, how short the guy is. But I got a picture of myself posing next to the Bronze Fawns. Actually, there was a guy in a Cubs jacket uh, happening hanging around there, and I had him take a picture of me, so... So I got home from Midwest Gaming Classic the day after the show was over. I slept overnight, and uh, so that way I wouldn't have to rush home on a Sunday night. So I came home that Monday morning, and then the next morning, that Tuesday, Lisa and I had a trip to San Francisco. It was Lisa's spring break. She's a high school teacher. And if you don't know what it's like to be a teacher or don't have anybody close to you who is a teacher, you have no idea the hell they go through during the school year. So they need this spring break desperately. Usually Lisa likes to go somewhere warm for spring break, like Vegas. Uh, We went to Austin one year. We went to New Orleans a couple of times, but this time we decided on San Francisco, which is fine with me. So we went to San Francisco and uh, I'll get back to that in a bit. But before the trip actually happened, Now, we take Southwest Airlines whenever we possibly can. Uh, By the way, Southwest, feel free to uh, sponsor this podcast. Uh, Email me at autobio at schnookpodcast.com. We'll work out the details. Okay, good. But probably a week or two before the trip, Lisa got an email from Southwest Airlines. Uh, She got the email because she actually did the booking. But she got an email from Southwest, and it said, 
that our flight coming back to Chicago was canceled. Apparently it was because the flight was scheduled to use one of those new Boeing jets that pilots have been having trouble understanding lately. And they didn't really have any other planes they could switch out with. So they had to cancel the flight and they gave us a couple of options. They said, well, you can take the flight out of San Francisco at 6.30 a.m., to which we said, um, hell no. So the other option was another flight at about the same time, sometime in the afternoon it was, but it would go into San Diego, and then we'd have to catch a connecting flight from San Diego to Chicago. So we took that one. It was the first time we ever had a connecting flight. And let me tell you how that went. Uh, First of all, I have a student loan that I've been paying since I went to grad school and I've been paying it since uh, I've been paying it for six years and I got an offer to refinance it. And with that offer came a free TSA pre-certification as an incentive. So I was like, Oh hell yeah. So I have now TSA pre, which means for those of you who don't fly a lot, TSA pre is as my wife calls it security classic. You go to the airport You just run your stuff through the metal detector and through the magnetometer, just like in the old days before September 11th happened. You don't have to take any computer equipment out. You don't have to take your shoes off. Just stick everything on the belt and grab it at the end. So that was pretty sweet. I got in and out of security in seconds. And the thing is, it's not the extensive unpacking and stuff that bothers me about the security. It's putting everything back together. That's what takes forever. But man, I'm so glad I got that TSA pre-cert. But when we came back home, our flight out of San Francisco was delayed. Wasn't delayed by much, but by the time we actually took off from San Francisco, if everything went swimmingly perfect, then once we landed in San Diego, we would have 20 minutes to get out of the plane and get onto our connecting flight. And the way that Southwest Airlines is arranged at San Diego Airport, for the most part, the Southwest planes are all in the same gate area. So we're thinking, okay, this will be great. All we got to do is get out of the gate, go across to the other gate, and we're in. Boom. No, we happen to get one of the few flights that takes off at another gate area, which meant we actually had to get out of the plane go out and then come back into another gate area, which meant we'd have to go through security again, which for me isn't a big deal because of the TSA pre. And actually we did both happen to get the TSA pre and we think that it might've been because it was a connecting flight. So we get to San Diego, we are running our asses off. So we got back in the security line and there were a couple of people who saw that we were like running and they were kind enough to allow us to skip ahead of them. We didn't even ask. And uh, the lady said, we saw you guys running. We felt that we thought this was kind of important. So why don't you go ahead? Oh, thank you so much. So I get through, but then Lisa gets pulled to the side. They had to inspect her carry on. And the reason she had to do that was, well, she habitually, once we get through security, she goes and buys a bottle of water and drinks some of it before we take off. Well, she did that at San Francisco. And when we got to San Diego, the bottle of water was still in her backpack and she completely forgot about it. And those of you who are not frequent flyers, the rule is when you go through security, you are not allowed to bring more than three ounces of any single liquid. And it must be in a container that is meant for three ounces or fewer. 
And since that was an open bottle of water that they're bringing through, they don't know that it's actually water. It could be sulfuric acid. It could be something else that could potentially cause some trouble. So of course they have to confiscate it. So yeah, so that delayed us. And Lisa told me, just go ahead of me. Don't even wait for me. Just tell them that your wife is right behind you. So I said, I did that. So I rushed my ass over to the gate and I was panting. There was nobody there but the gate agent. And the agent looked at me and she said, is your last name Courtney? I said, yes. She said, oh, good. We've been waiting for you. I said, oh, okay, good. My wife's behind me. She said, yeah, we know. Don't worry. We'll hold it for her. Don't worry. We're going to close the door, but don't worry. She's going to be fine. We'll make sure she gets on the flight. So we did. We got home and everything was okay. Everything was okay. But man, that was a tiring trip. And I'll get back to that in a second. There's just one thing that I want to talk about, uh, just partly just because it's one of those things I just really need to get out. And I'm going to warn you now, um, there's going to be some uncensored profanity here, mainly because if I censor it or use some other kind of language, it's just going to really take away a lot of the impact, a lot of the message that I'm kind of trying to say here. Uh, Unfortunately, a couple of weeks ago, uh, an old friend of mine died. Um, actually, he wasn't old. He was only 42. His name is Jeff. Uh, and the thing is, I've, I always pronounced his last name Maliki, but I saw a video a friend of his made pronounced it Maliki. So I don't know. I don't know. Jeff never corrected my pronunciation of his last name, but I first encountered him probably around 1996. I've mentioned before in this podcast that I'm a Brian Wilson fan. And as such, back in the 90s, I was a member of uh, some various online Beach Boys fan forums. And one day, this kid named Jeff joined and he introduced himself. And he said, hi, my name is Jeff. Um, I guess you can just call me Jeffy. Why would I have you call me a name for a little child? Well, because I'm only 19 years old and I figure that compared to most fans, I probably am just a little child. I have a feeling I'm probably the youngest one here by far. Uh, not really true. I had two years on him. And I remember his initial message. He said he got to become a big Beach Boys fans after he heard Pet Sounds, and especially after he heard their album, Summer in Paradise. Oh my God. Those of you who don't know, Summer in Paradise is an atrociously bad album. I remember somebody responded to that message and said, somebody get this kid a copy of Sunflower, which is a massive fan favorite, by the way. But anyway, Jeff was from the Milwaukee suburbs and you know, Milwaukee is not far from Chicago. It's an hour and a half drive. But interestingly, I never met him until I moved to New Jersey and I met him when Lisa and I came to Chicago as New Jersey residents. We used to go to Beetlefest all the time when it was uh, at the Hyatt Regency O'Hare Hotel. And during one of our Beetlefest trips, there happened to be a Brian Wilson show in Chicago at the House of Blues. So we m- met up with a bunch of people from the online fan community, including an, our friend Dan, who actually is now our neighbor. But uh, we met Jeff at that show. And at the end of the sh- I-, I remember this moment with Jeff at the end of the show, after the show was over. The guys in the band and Brian Wilson's backup band were just kind of hanging out, mingling with everybody. And there was one song that uh, they did called Marcella, which was a Beach Boys song from 1972. And uh, Brian Wilson co-wrote it. And I remember that um, 
there was some discussion as to what the first line of the song was, because even though the lyrics were printed in the 10 Years of Harmony compilation album that the song is on, people were kind of doubting. They thought it was just kind of a mistranslation of the words. And Probin Gregory, one of the band members, was walking around. I, I asked him, I said, hey, Probin, what is the first line of Marcella? And Jeff overheard me and he came and he said, Mystic Maidens more than soft and sexy. Or that is Mystic Maidens more than soft and sexy. Uh, Jeff had a very cartoony voice. And I remember Probin laughed. He said, yep, he got it. He got it. And man, I just remember um, not too long ago, maybe two months ago, Jeff was having some back problems and it was really getting on his nerves. And he just posted on Facebook and said, all right, this is really bothering me. I'm going to the doctor, find out what the hell's wrong with me. And it turned out he had cancer and they found out that it was testicular cancer actually that didn't go treated. If what I understand is correct, Jeff was talking about how he thought that what he had was, uh, it's a thing called hydrocele, hydrocele, which I looked up. It's apparently like a big mass of liquids that, that might build up and, Usually the treatment is just wait and it'll go away. He said that he had that problem since he was a little kid that, that it frequently happened, which is why it didn't really bother him. But it turned out this time it wasn't hydrocele, it was cancer. First of all, he had back surgery to repair the damage that the cancer had caused. And I remember he was posting about his physical therapy and how happy he was that he was finally able to walk without a walker. He got all excited once. He said, hey, everybody, I peed today. <laughs> and when he started chemo, though, oh, my God, that knocked him out. And he was very vocal about it. And by the way, this is where the profanities are going to come in. He would say, man, having cancer really sucks. I wouldn't wish this on my worst enemy. And he posted on Facebook saying, if I see anybody joking about cancer ever, you are dead to me. And, yeah, it was pretty excruciating watching him go through all that. Um, very frequently he was posting on Facebook quite simply. And I quote, fuck cancer. And somebody actually gave him a link to where he could order t-shirts and hats and things that said that. So he did that either. He did that or a couple of friends ordered him some stuff from that website. And his oncologist walked in and saw it and said, Oh my God, where can I get those? But yeah, that he, he had a very, very angry battle. There were two things that he would post very frequently on Facebook during that time. Either number one most common thing he posted was, and I quote, fuck cancer. Second most common thing he posted was, guys, please take care of your man parts. And yeah, that's very important. Absolutely. But I just remember, uh, when was it? It was Tuesday. No, Thursday. Um, May 1st, I think was that, was that a Tuesday? Was it May 1st? I don't know. It was either a Tuesday or Wednesday or somewhere around there. He posted on Facebook that he was only three weeks into chemo. I think he was supposed to get eight weeks, but he posted on Facebook at about 1230 that day. He said, and I quote, God damn it. I'm so fucking done with this bullshit. And I remember he, that so a lot of people commented on that. And then he responded to a comment apparently half hour later he was gone and that was a shock i mean that he was gone so soon uh and man that that just sucks uh but i think his funeral was the week it was the thursday before i'm recording this 
And I think that day, like he was a um, manager at a movie theater, Jeff was, and he, he was such a movie buff. And he had a YouTube channel that was all movie reviews and things. And the movie theater where he worked, the day of his funeral, one of the screens, they were showing his YouTube channel. I thought that was really, really cool. There's one significant memory that I really have of Jeff, and I have to share it. There's a little bit of explanation required for people who don't understand. Uh, in 1966, uh, yeah, you see where this is going, right? Brian Wilson, hey, there's a surprise of mentioning him. He started working on a new Beach Boys album called Smile, and he worked on it for like a year. And for various reasons that I can't get into right now because it'll take about eight days to explain, he pulled the plug on it, canceled the album. And for decades, he didn't want to talk about it at all. He didn't want to talk about Smile. Word on the street was that the music he recorded for it was just mind-blowing, brilliant, whatever other adjective you want to say. Well, in a miraculous turn of events in 2004, he actually finished it. That's the short story. And he toured it. And then the following year, he did another tour of Smile. And there was one show in... Summer 2005, August of 2005, that was booked for the Clio Theater in Clio, Michigan. Well, probably about a week before the show happened, the Clio Theater went out of business. So the show was canceled, obviously. So Brian Wilson's people scrambled to find a new venue, and they found the Park West in Chicago, and they booked that show. And it happened to be the last night that Lisa and I we're on our annual Beetlefest trip, so we would be in town. We figured we could ditch the last day of Beetlefest to go to a Smile concert. So we got the tickets. In fact, uh, from what I understand, the Park West show actually sold out within a couple of days with very little notice. Since we'd never been to the Park West before, we know that parking in Chicago can be kind of a premium. We left really, really early that Sunday to go into Chicago for the concert. We figured much rather be extremely early than drive around for a long time looking for parking. So we got there. We had no problem getting a parking space. We get to the Park West, and there's already a small line outside the door. It's a general admission theater, and it's a very small place, too. It's very intimate. And who's first in line but Jeff? And we say, hey, Jeff, how you doing? Oh, Sean and Lisa, I saved you spaces in line. Get behind me. I'm s I am know it sounds terrible. that It sounds like I'm mocking Jeff, but he had such a unique voice. I have to do that. So naturally, we got in line behind him, and thankfully, nobody else in line seemed to mind. So that was a relief. So naturally, the doors open. We go straight down. We kept walking, 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 walking until there was no further walking to do. And the reason there was no further walking was because the stage got in the way. And at the Park West, you don't sit in individual seats. There are tables. There's table service there. And our table was right in front of the stage. While she was sitting down, Lisa reached her arm out and her hand actually touched Brian Wilson's keyboard stand. She called her mother on her cell phone and said, hey mom, you know what I'm doing now? I'm touching Brian Wilson's keyboard stand. <laughs> a lot of our Chicago friends were at the table with us. There was uh, the McCabe's from Missouri. There was our friend Dan. And even our East Coast friend Susan actually flew out for the, for the show. And 
we saw her we're like, wait, Susan, what are you doing here? She said, well, I haven't been in Chicago for years and I figured this would be a great excuse to come back. So it was just a table of a bunch of people that we knew. And, uh, oh man, great moment. My friend, Dan, who's a major Dennis Wilson fan was wearing a t-shirt that he had custom made that had a picture of Dennis on it. And he's like very passionately singing into a microphone. And at one point during the show, Brian Wilson spots it, points at Dan, and he doesn't say into the mic, but he mouths, where'd you get that t-shirt? And I remember Dan's jaw just hit the floor. He's like, oh my God, I got Brian Wilson's attention. And all this happened because of Jeff. It happened because of Jeff. I even remember it was my wife who actually told me that Jeff had died. She was checking her email or Facebook or something. I saw her do the sign of the cross, which she habitually does when she learns that somebody she knows or somebody who's uh, a dear friend of someone she cares about dies. And I just instinctively said, who died? And she said, Jeff Malicki. And naturally, I was not expecting that. And I was like, oh, God. And I think before she even took her next exhale, she said, because of him, I got to touch Brian's keyboard stand. Any mention of Jeff that we had in the last... 15 years, pretty much, she had to bring that up. But yeah, um, so that happened in the last month. Uh, it was kind of a shock, kind of a shock. Um, but what are you going to do? You know, that it happens. Um, so in honor of Jeff, I'm just going to say this one more time. And then after that, no more profanity for the rest of the episode. Fuck cancer. God bless you, Jeff, wherever you are, my friend. Um, but you know what? Let's take this downer away. Let's let's uh, talk about something nice. Because of my recent trip to San Francisco, I decided that this episode would have a San Francisco theme. So let's get to the first segment, which I will call my secret, uh, with a question mark in parentheses, happy place. Plan a trip to San Francisco. Look at the guidebooks and tell your friends about your plans. You'll get a number of predictable suggestions. Make sure you ride on a cable car. Walk across the Golden Gate Bridge. Go to Fisherman's Wharf. Do the Alcatraz tour. Visit Chinatown. Check out Muir Woods. You like to read? Check out City Lights. You like hippie stuff? Go to Haight-Ashbury. To all that, I say, well, not only have I ridden a cable car, but I've also gone to the Cable Car Museum. I haven't walked across the Golden Gate Bridge, but I've driven over it a few times. And fair warning to everybody who hasn't done that, if you do drive over the Golden Gate Bridge, you have to pay a toll in advance online. Fisherman's Wharf? Yep, I've been there and I really don't want to go there again. So touristy. Alcatraz Tour? Sure, I recently did that. Mirror Woods? Well, that's outside of San Francisco, and it is lovely. It is lovely. I do recommend it. As for Chinatown... I highly recommend the walking tour. Try to get Linda Lee as your tour guide. She's amazing. Of course, I've been to City Lights, and I uh, know where the door is, by the way. And I've been to Haight-Ashbury. In fact, uh, you'll hear a story about that a little bit later in this episode. However, none of the suggestions you ever get about visiting San Francisco will tell you about my happy place. So if you're planning a trip to San Francisco... It's a good thing you're listening to this podcast. I'll tell you about a place that Lisa and I pretty much discovered on our own. No book or tourist ever told us about this place. 
But first, let me share a few thoughts about San Francisco. Strobe lights beam, creates dreams. Walls move, minds do too. On a warm San Francisco night. I've made it no secret about my love for my sweet home, Chicago. It's my favorite place. I've loved it all my life, and I love it more now that I've lived in this city for 13 years. Nobody's skyline beats the downtown Chicago skyline, although from the right vantage point, Manhattan's nighttime skyline gives Chicago's a run for its money. Having said that, I doubt there's a more visually beautiful city in the United States than San Francisco. Partly because of the topography, no matter where you are standing in the city, you're in for a great view. But wow, that topography. Let me tell you, except for a few minor grades, Chicago is relatively flat. San Francisco, not so much. Streets are steep, and in fact some are so steep that instead of sidewalks, they actually have staircases. The hilly streets are the reason that cable cars were brought into San Francisco in the first place. Back when the standard mode of transportation was horse and buggy, horses couldn't handle going up the hills, so the cable cars were brought in. Under the streets is a network of constantly moving cables that the cable cars grip to move up and down those streets. If you're not used to those hills but you walk for a few blocks in San Francisco, your legs will rebel. Getting out of bed the next morning will be an interesting experience. What's the weather like in San Francisco? Well, it depends on where you are in the city. San Francisco is notorious for its microclimates. It might be 80 degrees in one corner of the city, 55 in another. Your best bet is to use your favorite weather app on your smartphone and check the weather based on your zip code rather than depend on a weather report on the local news. A lot of what the weather will be like in different parts of the city depends on where Carl happens to be hanging out. Who's Carl? Well, as I only recently learned, Carl, uh, with a K, is the unofficial name of the perpetual fog that hangs over parts of the city. Carl actually has a Twitter account. His handle is Carl the Fog. Despite what I've heard from many who visit San Francisco, it's not really very rainy. In fact, in the seven times I've been there over the past ten years, it never once rained. From what I understand, there is a rainy season over there, but it's very short. My recommendation, though, is to pack for chilly weather and warm weather if you go. Case in point, when Lisa and I were in San Francisco in August 2014, we went to see Paul McCartney perform at Candlestick Park. In fact, that was the last event there ever before its demolition. Again, that was August. August! We were wearing long sleeve shirts, jeans, hoodies. And we were still cold. And during that same trip, we were wearing shorts at the beach. One of the two pop songs about San Francisco that were part of the Summer of Love was San Franciscan Nights by Eric Burden and the Animals. Five times in that song, the phrase, On a warm San Franciscan night, appears, prompting natives and frequent visitors to wonder, um, Has this Jamoke ever actually been to San Francisco? Indeed, he had been to San Francisco by that time, but it happened to be during an unusual heat wave. I guess that and the idea of sunny California made Burden conclude that it was typical of San Francisco to be warm, but <laughs> nope. Even the hotel where we usually stay doesn't have air conditioning. If you need air conditioning, just open the window wider. 
Of course, one cannot talk about San Francisco without talking about the impossibly high cost of living. Just out of curiosity, I did a quick Google search, and the cheapest studio I could find in the city of San Francisco was $2,500 a month. I thought I saw one for $1,800 a month, but it turns out that was in neighboring Daly City, the home of the famous Cow Palace. Well, for now at least, I've heard some stories that that might not be the case for long, but I'm not going to get into that right now. But wow, not even in the city, a studio apartment for $1,800. That's even more than what my wife and I pay for our three-bedroom apartment in the city of Chicago, and that includes water, garage, and a 24-on-site maintenance guy. In the various San Francisco trips that Lisa and I took, I'd occasionally ask someone, there's no way you're making enough money for San Francisco prices here. How do you manage to eke out a living? The response was invariably, oh, I don't live here. I live in Oakland. One Uber driver I talked to told me that he lives in San Francisco, but it's not easy. He says if you live in San Francisco, you have to work seven days a week to make ends meet. Teachers literally cannot afford to live in the city in which they're required to live in order to have a job. I don't know how they do it. Maybe some of them married into money. Perhaps some have multiple roommates to share that high cost of living. There's talk of a kind of a housing project specifically for teachers, but I can't imagine that's an ideal solution. The restaurant industry in particular is starting to hurt in San Francisco, though, because, well, you can't live on a restaurant salary. And you're not going to get waitstaff to commute from Oakland or other nearby areas because, well, they have restaurants in Oakland where they can easily find work. Hotels, however, man... Those are pretty damn expensive. The trick, however, is to find a nice hotel somewhere that's not in Union Square or Tourist War <clears throat> excuse me, Fisherman's Wharf, or anywhere else that all the guidebooks tell you to go. One such place is what I consider my happy place. Let me tell you about that. All the way west in San Francisco, starting at about 48th Avenue and Point Lobos Avenue, that is my happy place. North of that corner is Land's End, part of the Golden Gate National Recreation Area, with its windswept trees and spectacular views of the Pacific Ocean and the remains of the Sutro Baths, the latter of which was destroyed in a fire in 1966. Wait, did I really need to specify the latter? Did I honestly believe that you might think that I meant the Pacific Ocean burned down in 1966? Oh, well. Land's End has some really nice hiking trails that just demand you bring a good camera. After you walk the trail, you can have a very nice meal at Louie's, a diner-type family restaurant with some great views. They don't accept credit cards, though, so make sure you bring cash if you don't want to pay ATM fees. Or if you really don't like the idea of having money at all, then get a meal at the Cliff House restaurants. Great food, but man, you'll spend a lot of money. Point Lobos Avenue goes down the steep hill and curves into the Great Highway, a roughly three-mile north-south road that hugs the coast and will lead you to Golden Gate Park and the San Francisco Zoo to the west. Or if you continue straight on the Great Highway, you'll merge onto Skyline Boulevard, which leads to Daly City. To the right of the Great Highway is Ocean Beach. And that little section of San Francisco, starting at Land's End and going through Ocean Beach... That is my happy place. Lisa and I first discovered it during our first trip to San Francisco in September 2009, celebrating our 10th wedding anniversary. Actually, our friend David might have clued us in, so I don't know how valid my claim that it was our discovery is. But Lisa had her heart set on seeing the Pacific, 
Not that I blame her, I love the ocean too, but she grew up on the East Coast, spending almost 10 years living two blocks away from the Atlantic. She'd been to Los Angeles a few times at that point, but never far enough west to stop at the beach. We were staying in Union Square on the east side of town where Geary Boulevard begins. Geary is a pretty busy street, especially in Union Square with the downtown shopping district and, of course, tourists. Head west on Geary to Fillmore and you'll find yourself at the famous, um, well, Fillmore Auditorium. Continue west and you'll see, uh, from what I remember, a lot of laundromats. So if you have dirty clothes and live anywhere near Geary Boulevard, I have good news for you. At around 40th Avenue, Point Lobos Avenue begins, and the Geary bus actually splits off to the right to follow Point Lobos rather than continue straight on Geary. The bus terminates on that magical corner of Point Lobos in 48th. We were stunned. The beauty of Land's End to the right, the pleasant greenery of Sutro Heights to the left, and straight ahead and down the hilly street, the majesty of the Pacific Ocean. Breathtaking isn't a strong enough word to describe what we beheld. If you walk down Point Lobos, gravity is on your side, big time. On the right, you'll pass a parking lot and the Land's End Lookout, which essentially is a visitor's center, definitely worth checking out. Just outside the lookout, you can hike a couple of different trails for a self-guided tour, with warnings that if you veer off the trail, you might fall to your death. Further down and also on the right is Louie's. Again, I love that restaurant. If it's a rare sunny day, you'll definitely want to stop in there for dinner and watch the sun start to set. Right outside of Louis is a path carved out that you can use to walk down to the ruins of the Sutro Baths and perhaps explore a very small cave. I don't think it's an officially sanctioned hiking trail, but if you have steady legs, you'll have no trouble getting down there safely. There aren't any tight squeezes, the path is wide enough that you'll be perfectly safe. Further down is Point Lobos Curves to the south, you'll pass the Cliff House restaurant. Again, very expensive, but man, they give you some amazing sourdough rolls with dinner. Located on the property of the Cliff House is a little building called Giant Camera, which is a camera obscura that was built as part of Playland at the Beach, an amusement park that closed in 1972. Man, the late 60s and early 70s were bad times for independent amusement parks, weren't they? But anyway, the Giant Camera is the only thing left from Playland, and it's still operational. I've never actually been inside it, though. Hmm, note to self for next trip to San Fran. Continue downhill on Point Lobos as it turns into the Great Highway, and the next stop is Ocean Beach, bordered by a concrete wall tagged with harmless graffiti and with dozens of welcoming entrances. Uh, be careful, though, when you go down the stairs, there's no handrail. Find yourself a spot to rest, take in the sights, meditate, listen to music, jot down your thoughts, because you will have a lot of thoughts. Walk up and down the three miles of beach to the left, or go off to the right and explore the cove down there, including a cave if you're brave enough. Uh, if you're tall, be prepared to bend yourself in half. But Ocean Beach shouldn't be nice. It's usually cold, both the air and the water. The ocean is too rough for swimming. In fact, there are signs warning you against going into the water at all, lest you risk your life. The sky is usually foggy and gray. So why is a beach where you can't swim or get a tan probably the most amazing place in this country that I've ever seen? Honestly? I don't know. Maybe it's the serenity. Maybe it's the dozens of dogs you're likely to see frolicking, expected to fetch tennis balls and sticks thrown into the surf. Maybe it's just that because there's nothing else to do, 
you experience a zen-like existence that both clears your mind and brings you new and sometimes exciting ideas. When we went to San Francisco in 2015, it was kind of freaky in the outer Richmond district. There wasn't a cloud in the sky. Nobody believed us when we posted pictures on Facebook of the sunset over the ocean. You never see a blue sky over Ocean Beach. That was a strange day indeed. It was warm at the beach, about 85 degrees. The water was warm too, and mellow, very mellow. Families were actually swimming in the ocean, despite the lack of lifeguards and against the advice of all the signs posted. Man, I was wishing I'd brought swimming attire. But flash forward to this year. We arrived in San Francisco on April 16th, and when we got to the outer Richmond district, we experienced once again a perfectly clear sky over the ocean. I missed my foggy ocean beach sky, but the windswept trees on the cliffs looked great against that blue tint. The ocean, however, was very rough, and it was extremely windy out. If it's not dark out, you'll see surfers on the waves, but this time, the surfers all had one thing in common besides surfing. They were all holding on to large kites. I don't know for sure if this was for safety with the strong winds or just something to do for fun. Hey everybody, let's go surfing while flying kites! But then again, given that every surfer we saw that whole day had kites, I'm guessing it was a safety thing. If you get wiped out on your board, your kite being kept afloat by strong winds gives you something to hold on to so you can pull yourself out of the water. I watched surfers ride these waves at breakneck speeds, sometimes flying 10 feet in the air dangling by their kite strings. I think I took some video, and if I did, I will certainly link it in the online bibliography at schnookpodcast.com. It occurs to me that I described everything to the right of the road, but not much to the left. Well, going back to the intersection of 48th and Point Lobos, you have Sutro Heights, a nice place to walk through if you like lush parks, and who doesn't? On the way down to the beach, well, it's just cliffs, really, essentially the bottom of Sutro Heights. Across the Great Highway from Ocean Beach, well, it's pretty residential, actually. Although a couple of streets in, there is a strip of businesses, including a gym and a deli called Kawika's Ocean Beach Deli, a great place to stop and pick up some lunch for a beach picnic. Go a few more streets in, and there's a Safeway. Um, actually, it's a pretty dumpy store now that I think of it. Hmm. There's also a pretty crappy Walgreens back up the road on Geary before it merges into Point Lobos. Two rundown instances of big-name stores, but they're not in a low-rent district by any means. I don't know how that works. Oh, well. Anyway, further south down the Great Highway is Golden Gate Park, which if you have the patience and stamina to walk through it to the east, you'll end up in the famous Haight-Ashbury district. At the west end of Golden Gate Park, near the Great Highway, you'll find two decommissioned windmills, the Dutch windmill on the north side and the Murphy windmill to the south. Between the two, though closer to the Dutch windmill, is Beach Chalet Brewery and Restaurant, another eh, not necessarily inexpensive restaurant, but with excellent food and uh, not quite as expensive as the Cliff House. In the Beach Chalet parking lot is a small memorial obelisk to Roald Amundsen. A bit south of Golden Gate Park is the San Francisco Zoo. Never been there, so I can't really say much about it other than uh, I think you might be able to see animals there. Every time Lisa and I go to Ocean Beach, which is pretty much every day during our trips to San Francisco, we each take turns walking up and down the beach, being alone with our thoughts and ideas. Sometimes we'll scritch a passing dog on the head, 
or we'll stop and take a look at designs that kids may have carved in the wet sand. We take turns, uh, quite simply because the beach isn't patrolled, so one of us has to stay back at the beach blanket and make sure our stuff is secure. Whoever stays behind will perhaps meditate with a playlist on the iPod or take notes in a journal. In my case, on this recent trip, I worked a little bit on my homework for the songwriting class I'm taking at the Old Town School of Folk Music. Interesting that Chicago is the only place in the world that has such a school. San Francisco would certainly be a natural fit for a nonprofit music community. Ah well. Invariably, Lisa finds at least one sand dollar in perfect condition and miraculously gets it home in one piece. When the sun goes down, I admire the glow of the beach fires people built. Um, only in designated fire pits, of course. Uh, one night during our trip, people were getting ready to have a full moon festival, um, even though the evening fog completely blocked out the moonlight. The previous night, we could actually see a starry sky, though. On our last night of the trip, there was a crowd of people setting up tents, undoubtedly for the 420 festival that would be happening in Golden Gate Park the next day. April 20th. After our day of exploration, meditation, and of course, dogs is over, we walk back up the taxing incline of Point Lobos Avenue to our room at the Seal Rock Inn. We're so glad to have found that place. It's surprisingly inexpensive, and actually for San Francisco, it's dirt cheap. And it has pretty sizable rooms, too. The Seal Rock Inn is a rustic but very clean and well-kept hotel. The lower level consists of the front desk and a diner-style restaurant that has very good food for, again, a surprisingly low price. The elevator is kind of bizarre, though. You have to open a door to get to the elevator, and the door will only open if the elevator is at the floor where you are standing. Hmm. Speaking of weird elevators, uh, I'm not the kind of person who does the bucket list thing, but I created a bucket list for the sole purpose of adding Ride in a Paternoster elevator to it. Uh, Note to self, go to Europe, ride a Paternoster elevator. <laughs> anyway, one of the things I love about staying at the Seal Rock Inn is being lulled to sleep by distant foghorns and the rattle and hum of the Geary buses parked across the street from the hotel. Some complain about the noise from the buses, but Lisa and I actually find it kind of pleasant. I'm glad to be back home in Chicago, but still, my happy place is that western part of Outer Richmond, Land's End and Ocean Beach. We weren't told about my happy place, yet after our visits there, people come out of the woodwork saying they've been there and love it. So maybe my secret happy place isn't as secret as I think it is. Even though I'm an organ donor, I wanted to see if there was a way that part of me could be buried there. Some people request that their hearts be buried in places they love or that their ashes be scattered in their favorite bodies of water. The thing is though, I want to make sure personally that it happens. So when I was in Ocean Beach in 2018, I made sure that a part of me was already buried there. I took a fingernail clipping and buried it in the sand. That ought to count, right? My loving wife says I'm a weirdo for doing that, yet she offered no better option other than to go back, which we did for spring break this year. And we're going back again, and I hope you go there too. So yeah, Outer Richmond in San Francisco, oh, my happy place, but alas, you can't have happy without the opposite of happy. I'm going to have to talk about something that's eh, not quite a happy topic. 
Um, Without further ado, I'm just going to introduce this next segment, and I'm going to call it Sean Goes to Prison. Let's face it, it was inevitable. After all, I came of age in a city nicknamed Prison Town. Well, okay, that's not the official nickname of Joliet, but at least when I grew up there, it was home to, or at least near, no fewer than four prisons. Four. On the east side, there was the Joliet Correctional Facility on Collins Street, which has since been shut down, and uh, since then it's served as the Fox River State Penitentiary in the TV show Prison Break. That's also where Joliet Jake was released at the beginning of the Blues Brothers. Over on the southwest side of town is the Illinois Youth Center, which was recently converted to a maximum security prison and a treatment facility for the mentally ill. Downtown you have the Will County Jail, and a 10-minute drive up Route 53 will take you to the Stateville Correctional Center in Crest Hill. Most likely the same Stateville referred to at the end of every episode of the TV show Police Squad. However, I've never set foot in any of those jails. Where I went was Federal Prison. A place where they put the ones that other prisons weren't able to control. A place where staffers lost their lives in riots. And unlike those who tried to escape, I actually made it out alive and can tell you about it. What was I in for? Uh, I'll get to that. How long was I there? Obviously long enough for it to merit a segment on autobiography of a schnook. But where was it? Alcatraz. The Rock. So what was I in for? Well, a self-guided tour, of course. Come on, the prison closed 11 years before I was even born. How long was I there? Two, three hours, perhaps. But ever since I first went to San Francisco in September 2009, people told me the same thing, time and time again. You need to do the Alcatraz tour! Just one problem. Lisa didn't want to do it. She didn't want to waste her time walking around an abandoned prison. But over the years, I got curious. I kept hearing from more people, you gotta do the Alcatraz tour! Last year, uh, that is summer of 2018, for those of you listening in the future, Lisa and I did a two-week California road trip, starting with a few days in San Diego, then driving up to San Francisco with a few stops in between. Before we left for that trip, I looked into touring Alcatraz. Unfortunately, I learned that the Alcatraz tour was one of the most popular things to do in the Bay Area, so popular that tours sell out literally months in advance. How disappointing. When we decided to make another trip to San Fran this year, I immediately looked into booking the tour, and I found out that in addition to being too late to book a tour, there's also such a thing as booking too early. When I checked, tickets wouldn't yet be on sale for another three months for the days we were going to be there. But when those three months were up, I got the exact date and time that I wanted. Not a bad price either. I think it was only like 35 bucks. That's pretty cheap for something popular that happens to be so close to Fisherman's Wharf. The first thing you do is get in a super long line to board a boat that takes you to Alcatraz Island. There's a regular schedule of boats that go back and forth to and from the island, so you have to kind of plan when you want to come back based on the schedule they give you. I had a 1.30 tour. At about 1 o'clock, the Escape pulled in. Uh, The Escape is the largest boat in the Alcatraz Tours fleet. And for at least 20 minutes, there was a seemingly endless stream of passengers alighting the boat. 
just realized I never use that word in casual conversation. Eh, oh well. Alight, A-L-I-G-H-T. Look that up in your Funkin' Wagnalls. But anyway, I took a seat on the inside once that line finally, finally finished. So that way I was safe from the blaring of the sun, an unusual occurrence over the San Francisco Bay. On the way to the island, a recorded announcement spoke wistfully about the wonders of Alcatraz Island, emphasizing how Alcatraz wasn't just a prison. So, naturally, once the boat docked and I disembarked, almost everything I heard, saw, and read spoke of Alcatraz being a prison. Sure, there was an extremely brief mention of the 1969 occupation of the island by Indians of all tribes in an act of political protest, but I have a funny feeling that if it weren't for the extant gravity from that occupation, there wouldn't have been a mention at all. There was a guy with a microphone giving a brief orientation. I hesitate to call him a tour guide because the tours are now self-guided, so I'm just going to call him the host. One of the first things the host talked about was how Alcatraz Island technically is not within the jurisdiction of California, but it's federal property. And as such, there were certain things that were recently legalized in California, but since Alcatraz is not within the state of California technically, what was legal in California was still illegal on a federal level. The host said, If you happen to have brought any such things with you, then please keep them in your bag, or else the authorities will make sure you do not leave with those certain things. Hmm. I wonder what things he was talking about, uh, and if they come with a Proposition 65 warning. Uh, look that up in your favorite search engine if you don't know what I'm talking about. Also, the host told us that in the gift shop was George DiVincenzi, who was an Alcatraz prison guard back in the 50s. He witnessed a murder within his first 15 minutes on the job. He was signing copies of his book, Murders on Alcatraz, but anyway, the host guy directed everybody toward the main cell house for the self-guided tour. As with just about everywhere else in San Francisco, just walking around the island itself involved almost zero flat paths. It was all uphill. When you walk into the cell house, the very first part you walk through is the shower room. If I remember the verbiage on the posters inside correctly, inmates were allowed two showers a week, or maybe in the case of prisoners who worked physically demanding jobs, three showers a week. There were 20 shower heads on either side of a long pipe and no barriers at all. Yep, if you were a prisoner in Alcatraz, you showered with no privacy whatsoever. And this was for security. Guards would keep an eye on everybody and make sure that nobody did anything wrong. You'd leave your cell in the nude and be escorted to the shower room. What I couldn't help but notice was that the shower heads only had an on-off control. Nothing to adjust the temperature. I, I notice things like that because I can't tolerate taking a cold shower. Later, though, I learned that prisoners would get hot showers. And apparently most prisons only have cold showers available for the inmates. So why did Alcatraz offer hot showers? Well, the belief was that if somebody tried to escape and made it far enough to get to the shore... The escapee, who'd be used to the hot prison water, would feel how cold the water is in the San Francisco Bay, and would ergo be discouraged from going through with the escape attempt. There's a partition section in the back of the shower room where, once you finish your shower, you'd go to get your prison blues, as they're called, the blue prison outfit issued by Alcatraz. As a tourist spot, the shower room acts mainly as a place for everybody to line up, and the line snakes around the showers. 
at the end of the line are several staffers who hand you a uh, an iPod-like device that lets you play, stop, and adjust the volume. Then you go up a spiral staircase and press play. The self-guided audio tour is a recording from a former Alcatraz guard. Unfortunately, I don't remember his name, but I'm pretty sure it's not the aforementioned George DiVincenzi. Whoever it is, though, sounds not unlike R. Lee Ermey. Proceed to cell block C. Locate the poster near the window. Read the poster. Then turn around and look at cell 133. Very commanding voice. Even though that former guard wasn't physically present, I almost felt that I'd be penalized with push-ups if I didn't follow his directions to the letter. One thing that made me cringe, though, is that he repeatedly pronounced the word escape as escape. Throughout the audio tour, you'd hear sound bites from other former prison guards and former Alcatraz inmates sharing their recollections. Now, I'm not going to go detail by detail over the whole tour, mind you. For one thing, I'm sure I'll get something wrong, and another thing, well... What would be the point of you going if I told you everything? I'm just going to go over some of the things that really stuck out for me. For one thing, how small the prison is. Actually, the whole island itself is pretty small. In the prison, I think there's something like 1,400 cells in total. And from what I learned later, no more than, I think, 300 cells were ever occupied at once. The cell blocks have three rows of cells on either side, one row on top of the other, and they weren't very tall. I'd estimate the cells are about 8 feet high, if that. The cells are pretty small all around, so much that some of the taller inmates apparently couldn't fully stretch out parallel to the longest wall, meaning that they would have to sleep on an angle, of course. The cells have a toilet. What, you know, what's really weird is that many of the cells have toilets that were destroyed and they're literally still there in pieces. But the cells have a toilet, a bed, a sink, and a shelf. When a new prisoner was brought to his cell, he would find a copy of the Alcatraz rules and regulations waiting for him. One of the cells you're told to look at has one of said rules booklets on a bed. Unfortunately, it's a small book, and uh, it's literally impossible to actually read the rules and regulations unless you could somehow get into the cell, which you're not really allowed to do, at least not that particular cell. There are excerpts on posters and various items in the gift shop, but man, I'd love to see that entire book, even just a copy of it, because I'm curious. But anyway, at the end of one of the cell blocks is a clock above the, I guess, division between that cell block and the dining hall. Prisoners would refer to that little part of the cell house as Times Square, well, because it has a clock. And the cell block that actually led directly to that clock, therefore, was called Broadway. I couldn't help but notice a sign in one cell block calling it Michigan Avenue, but the narrator didn't mention Michigan Avenue at all. Of course, because I'm a Chicagoan, that name caught my attention. I told Lisa about it, and she suggested that it may have been called Michigan Avenue, perhaps because a lot of Chicago criminals were housed there. But no, it turns out that it's because a lot of the prisoners in that cell block were actually from the state of Michigan. On the other side of Times Square is the dining hall, which was considered the most dangerous part of the prison. Well, why would the dining hall be so dangerous? They just go there to eat, right? Well, think about it. You get 200 prisoners in one large room, and they're given metal knives and forks. What could possibly go wrong? Apparently, a riot did break out once when the inmates got spaghetti for dinner over and over for a large number of days. I don't remember how long. But because they got so sick of spaghetti, the prisoners kind of huddled together and agreed to start trouble if they got spaghetti one more day. 
And because of that little riot that broke out, the staffers at Alcatraz agreed to prepare good meals so that they would prevent further rioting. And as a result, Alcatraz actually gained a reputation of having the best food in the prison system. In the kitchen, there's a board where knives would be hung up, and the knives' outlines were on the board. If you saw an outline, it meant that either somebody in the kitchen was using it for food prep, or that somehow an inmate got a hold of it, and you'd better pray to God that it was the former. And up toward the ceiling in the dining hall, there are several tear gas canisters, and those were put there in case of rioting. If a riot broke out, the thought was, okay, we'll set off the tear gas. But they were never actually used, and apparently it's a good thing. Because of the unventilated surroundings there, setting off the tear gas likely would have resulted in the deaths of not only prisoners, but also staffers. Wow. What really stuck out to me during my Alcatraz tour was how bright many parts of the cell house are from natural sunlight, as opposed to artificial sunlight. Hmm. Oh, well. I've never been to any other prison, so I really don't know if that's normal, but there are a lot of areas exposed to sunlight. The dining hall has a lot of windows on both sides of it. And surprisingly, so does the solitary confinement cell block, where the worst of the prisoners were kept. Speaking of solitary, I had heard that on the tour, they actually lock you in a solitary confinement cell for a few minutes for a brief, um, thrill, I guess. Well, now that the tours are self-guided, that doesn't actually happen, but you can walk into the solitary cells and have a look around. And if you want the door closed, you gotta do it yourself. The cells have lights, but once someone is assigned to one of them, the light comes off. Part of the audio tour had a recording from a former prisoner who, from what a friend tells me, actually was a tour guide there at one point. But he said that to keep himself from losing his mind when he was in solitary confinement, he tore a button off of his prison blues, and he dropped it on the floor, spun around to make himself dizzy, and then searched the floor for the button. And once he found it, he would start all over again. He'd drop the button on the floor, spin himself around, make himself dizzy, and look for the button. Another former prisoner, he was talking about how his solitary cell had a little tiny peep of daylight coming through a hole. And he'd make a game out of focusing on that little tiny bit of sunshine and maximizing it all he could. And there was yet another soundbite from an ex-solitary confinement prisoner who said that he would sit there and pretend to watch TV, making up his own imaginary TV shows. Being brought to a solitary confinement cell that was directly across from a hall of huge windows, that must have been mental torture, knowing that sunlight is on the other side of that dark cell. In fact, all those windows to the world must have just been torture. I actually felt sorry for Alcatraz inmates. They were there on the inside, in the toughest prison in the country, and just a mile and a quarter across the water was beautiful San Francisco. One former prisoner, again on uh, the recording, he talked about how they could all hear the hoopla coming from across the bay every New Year's Eve. And yes, I know I shouldn't feel sorry for anybody there. These were criminals judged to be so bad that they were shipped over to the rock. Well, I have two things to say about that. For one thing, not everybody who is in prison necessarily should be in prison. Wrong convictions happen, my friends. And another thing, you can actually see names of prisoners and why they were shipped over to Alcatraz. The legendary Alphonse Capone. Yeah, you know all the crap he did, right? But why do they toss him over to Alcatraz? Tax evasion. Hardly public enemy number one with that crime. I'm not saying it's necessarily a victimless crime, but it's not, say, murder or kidnapping or assault. Actually, there were a lot of inmates that served time at Alcatraz for tax evasion and fraud. Oh, speaking of Al Capone, 
When you go to school in Joliet, as I did, at some point you'll learn this fun fact. Al Capone was once given a speeding ticket in Joliet. Well, if that's true, it's not on his rap sheet. But what I can say for sure, from the rap sheet I saw during the Alcatraz tour, he was arrested in Joliet on a weapons violation. And apparently Capone was a pain in the ass to deal with in Alcatraz, very uncooperative with the guards. He did, however, play ukulele in the prison band, go figure. Yeah, Capone was a problem, but apparently Machine Gun Kelly was a sweetheart. There were sound bites talking about what a cooperative guy he was. He was a model prisoner, he was very personable, and he often volunteered to be an altar boy for prison masses, apparently. Part of the tour is you go outside and you see the recreation yard. Now it's just a big bare concrete slab, but at one time it contained a baseball diamond. Apparently, one of the most popular activities among prisoners during rec breaks was bridge. Yeah, the card game bridge. Outside, despite having to deal with strong wind gusts coming from the bay, many of the inmates were very hyper-intensively focused on their bridge games, which the guards didn't mind at all. They figured, well, if they're in such deep concentration on a card game, then the furthest thing from their minds would be an escape attempt. Now, kind of jumping to the end, the self-guided tour ends in the dining hall, and with that part of the tour, you're also given an explanation as to why the prison closed. Oh, and um, Alcatraz is also kind of like Disneyland. When you're done with the attraction, you exit via the gift shop. <laughs> but long story short, uh, in case you don't know this, uh, Bobby Kennedy, as JFK's attorney general, ordered Alcatraz closed because it was way too expensive to maintain, what with the exposure to the elements from the bay. Also, the prison system at the time was attempting to move more toward rehabilitation than just straight punishment, but Alcatraz was not equipped for that kind of a transition. There was an audio bite from one of the last inmates to walk away from Alcatraz. He talked about how he saw all the cars on the roads when he got out, and he was thinking about how the people in those cars all had a specific purpose, a reason they were in those cars. They were going somewhere to do something. But where was he going? He didn't know. He was scared. Yeah, he was leaving the most notorious prison in the country. But at least when he was behind bars, he knew where he was going to sleep every night. He knew that he would be fed every day. But now that he's not in prison anymore, what happens next? The what happens next is a very common situation for former prisoners, not just with Alcatraz and not just back then. So prison is in the past. What's next? Well, when I toured Alcatraz, there was an art exhibit in the Industries building. Uh, that's the building where some inmates who had jobs would uh, work. The art exhibit was called Future ID, and it featured work from former prisoners who had been incarcerated over the last 10 years or so. The idea was that when you were a prisoner, you had to carry a prison ID on your person at all times. But now that you're free, what would you want your new ID to have on it? If I remember correctly, the guideline the artists were given was design your ID so that it had either your current job, your dream job, or your proudest accomplishment. I took as many pictures of the exhibit as I could, and I looked up the names of most of the artists, and it appears that most, if not all, of those who submitted works really turned their lives around big time. Many now run their own businesses. Many went back to school and got advanced degrees, started families, took on creative projects, you name it. The industry's building closes pretty early, I think like 4 o'clock. So by the time I got there, I only had about 5 minutes to look around. 
I took pictures of everything I possibly could, but unfortunately the four o'clock closing time came and I was booted out of there before I could snap pictures of everything I wanted to, but I think I got a pretty good sample. And I will be happy to share some of those on social media or on the online bibliography at schnookpodcast.com. I believe that exhibit has since closed, though. I might be wrong, but I think it's closed now. What I find fascinating is that when Alcatraz was an active prison, staffers actually lived on Alcatraz Island. Former barracks from when Alcatraz was a military prison were converted into apartments for prison staffers and their families. At one time, there were even proms held on the island for teenagers who lived there. There were even stores on Alcatraz Island so that residents could go shopping without having to hop on a boat to the mainland. I I just can't fathom that. Living on a small island? Sure, the mainland is just a mile and a quarter away and just a 10-minute boat ride, but still, man, that would set off my claustrophobia big time. Anyway, was the Alcatraz tour the end-all, be-all that everybody says it is? Personally, I think it's a bit overrated, but it's still a good deal for what you pay. Again, it's surprisingly inexpensive. Supposedly, the nighttime tour is the one you really want to do. Actually, I'm glad I didn't do the nighttime tour, though, because I wouldn't have been able to see the Future IDs exhibit. I left out a lot of details about the tour, though. I don't want to give everything away. But I think the one thing that I really took away, just feeling bad for people who are incarcerated there. Heck, just being a tourist and looking around there affected me in a way that made me want to get out of there on the next boat, which... I almost did, but some yuts cut the line, and because they couldn't track down who cut the line, I ended up being the first person on the boat after the next boat. Ah, well. Money well spent? Mm, Sure. Will I do it again? Probably not. Yeah, I did it. Do I recommend the Alcatraz tour? Well, I can't say that I specifically recommend it. It's not necessarily for everybody, but I don't recommend that you not do it necessarily. I'm just glad that I did it, and it's out of my system. Now, if only they would give more coverage of the 1969 occupation by the Indians of all tribes. One thing I didn't talk a lot about was the music in Alcatraz. I mentioned Capone playing ukulele in the prison band, of course, but um, they were allowed in Alcatraz to have music time. I think it was on Wednesday nights or something. And one of the cells that uh, they prepped for the tour actually has an accordion in it, along with uh, some sheet music and stuff. At the very least, you had some music if you wanted it. And yeah, this, I'm not going to lie, this was just a contrived way to transition into music for schnooks. This is still going to have kind of a San Francisco theme to it in a way, but this is going back to something a little bit more in the happy side, if not a lot more. And it's a story that I like to call My Wife, The Enabler. Hate Ashbury, needless to say, is a weird district of San Francisco. Along Hate Street between Masonic Avenue on the east and Stanion Street on the west, you'll find a pretty motley variety of people. You'll have panhandlers, tourists, buskers, and people quietly and loudly offering to sell you pot or LSD. And a good deal of people in each of those categories have dogs with them. A short distance west of Masonic at 122 Lyon Street was a house where Janis Joplin lived for a short time. 
and 710 Ashbury once housed Jerry Garcia and other members of the Grateful Dead. There is a wide variety of shopping on that stretch of Haight Street. At the famous corner of Haight and Ashbury is a Ben and Jerry's, and across Ashbury at that corner is a t-shirt shop where I've purchased several tie-dyes over the years. For those into reading, there's a nice bookstore called Booksmith. If you get hungry and you like bad pizza, you can stop at Escape from New York Pizza for New York-style pizza. Hey, I'm a Chicagoan. You can't expect me to like that skinny-ass excuse for pizza crust. There, I said it. One of the famous Amoeba Records' three locations is on Haight Street near Golden Gate Park. Fun fact, that Amoeba Records location was converted from a bowling alley. Across the street from Amoeba is Whole Foods. My advice, don't go there to use their bathroom. Their payment system is both ridiculous and confusing. Between Ashbury and Clayton is an Eastern-themed shop called Love of Ganesha, That store has been in the neighborhood since the 70s, and the owner has a reputation of being extremely welcoming. The store reeks of incense and other aromas, and in the back of the store is a meditation tent where you can go if you just need a break. No talking, no shoes, no cameras, no phones, and no unpaid merchandise allowed. Lisa always goes into that shop, and while she's there, I usually walk across the street to the Haight-Ashbury Music Center. I don't think I've ever actually made a purchase at Haight-Ashbury Music Center, but I've been there many times. They have a great selection of instruments and sheet music. When Lisa and I were there in 2013, I saw something intriguing among those instruments, something I'd seen there before that was tempting me more and more each time I went. Two or three theremins, a couple of digital ones, and a Moog model that was very true to the classic ones. The $340 price tag was a bit off-putting, though. Yeah, I know that's not a bad price for a professionally made theremin, but do I really want to drop that much money? And an even bigger question, how the hell would I get it home? They'd ship it to Chicago, I'm sure, but I'm also sure that cost would bring it closer to, if not more than, the $380 for the same model that I saw at a music store in Chicago, so I passed. But there was one thing I couldn't not admire. Something I stared at wistfully every time I went to Haight-Ashbury Music Center over the years, including our most recent trip. A row of Rickenbacker guitars hanging on wall mounts. It was a beautiful sight. You see, ever since I taught myself to play guitar in the summer of 1988, I wanted a Rickenbacker 12-string. There was always something about the sound of a 12-string that was different, charming, brighter than a standard 6-string. In fact, when I play an acoustic guitar, it's extremely rare that I play a six-string. One of those rare occasions actually was when I recorded the theme music for this podcast, by the way. But for me, playing a six-string acoustic just feels thin and weak. The extra six strings of a 12-string do make all the difference in the world to me. It makes the sound so much fuller. For those of you who aren't that into guitars and don't know what the difference between a 6-string and a 12-string is, other than the number of strings, obviously, I'll give you a little rundown. In terms of the actual basic playing of a 6-string and a 12-string, there's no difference. The fingering is the same, the notes are the same. Well, one thing you can't do so well on a 12-string that's pretty easy to do on a 6-string is bending in the strings. Because of the close proximity of the strings in each of the pairs of strings, It's very difficult to bend the notes, and if you can successfully bend the notes, you can't bend them as much as you can on a six-string. 
On a standard Spanish-style six-string guitar, you would not believe how hard it was to say that. Going from the lower notes to the higher notes, you have an E string, an A string, a D string, a G string, yeah, I know, I'm giggling too, a B string, and then another E string, but two octaves higher than the other E string. A 12-string guitar doubles up on each of the strings. Instead of one string, you're actually hitting a pair of E strings or A strings or B strings, and they're just millimeters away from each other. Also, the lower four pairs of strings are an octave apart. So not only do you have a standard E string, but you have another E string right next to it that's an octave higher. The same with the A and the D and the G strings. They're each paired off with another string playing the same note but an octave higher, which is what gives the 12-string that unique sound. The two higher-pitched strings, the B and the high E, they're paired off with the exact same notes. Because, well, you can't really make thinner versions of those without the string breaking. But when you play those pairs of B strings or E strings together, you're technically hearing the same note, but there's a certain resonance about the overall tone. Tuning a 12-string can be a pain in the butt, though, because now you have 12 strings that have to be tuned right instead of just six. And because of the tension the extra strings have in the guitar neck when they're adjusted, the tuning of one string could affect the tuning of the rest of the strings. So when you actually tune each of the individual strings, you have to go back and double check every one of them to make sure none of them fell out of tune when you were tuning the other strings. So yeah, that can be eh, kind of rough. And if you put a capo on a 12-string, you might open yourself up to even more retuning. And those of you who don't know what a capo is, it's a small device that goes on the fretboard, and it lets you play in a higher key without having to adjust your chord shapes on your fingers. It's especially useful in playing in a sharp or a flat key. As for what songs you might have heard that include a 12-string guitar, well, there are plenty, actually. I think just about any John Denver song you'll hear uses an acoustic 12-string, as do most songs on Love's Forever Changes album, which I talked about in a previous chapter. Tom Petty used 12-string guitars on a lot of his songs, both acoustic and electric, and you can hear an electric 12-string on Stairway to Heaven. Of course, most songs by the Birds have Jim McGuinn's Rickenbacker Maple Glow 37012 prominently up front. In fact, that was my first exposure to a 12-string guitar, hearing the Birds' 1965 number one hit Turn, Turn, Turn on a Columbia single when I was four years old. Even as a four-year-old, I was getting into records, but because I was just four, I judged records by the labels. I loved the deep red of that Columbia label, so I nagged my mom into buying it for me. I guess she figured, heck, it's only 39 cents, it's pocket change, this'll shut him up for a while. But I actually played it, and the unique guitar sound really jumped out at me. I never heard anything like it before, and for years I wondered how a guitar could get that weird jangly sound. Of course, I eventually learned that the guitar has to have 12 strings for one thing, and I grew to love the sound of 12-string guitars, both electric and acoustic. I got my first 12-string as a birthday present when I turned 18 in 1992. It was a Gibson Epiphone PR35012 acoustic. Apparently, the PR-35012 has the body of a 6-string guitar but the neck of a 12-string, but whatever. It did the job, and it had good sound. I had it for about seven years until I took it to the Chicago Beetle Fest in 1999, back during that eight-year span of my life when I lived in New Jersey. 
Before the flight back home, I forgot to loosen the strings, and thanks to the changing pressure in the airplane, the headstock split during the flight. I complained to Continental Airlines, and, well, they agreed to give me a travel voucher worth the value of the guitar. They handed me a form and told me to take it to a music store and get a quote from the music store on the cost of a repair or a replacement. So I took my Epiphone 12 string to Mammoth Music in Red Bank, New Jersey. The guitar tech couldn't fix it. He declared it a total loss. And he told me he could get me the exact same model for $199. But because the list price was $399.99, that's what he put on the Continental Airlines form. So I got a travel voucher for twice what I actually paid for the new guitar, so I was happy. I still have that replacement. In fact, I was using it not even 12 hours before I recorded this. It still serves me quite well. Now, this is all fine and dandy, but pretty much since I first learned to play guitar, my dream was to own a Rickenbacker 12-string, ideally a Fireglow 360-12, a uh, slight variation on the model George Harrison played in A Hard Day's Night. I remember another time I went to Mammoth Music and I told one of the workers there that the Rick 12-string was my dream guitar. He said, oh, really? Here, let me show you what I'm selling. He took me into a room where there was an amplifier, and he handed me a Yamaha 12-string and told me to try it out. Well, whatever. So I futzed around with it for a bit, handed the guitar back to him, and said, eh, no. Oh, and uh, I mentioned a couple of weird terms, maple glow and fire glow. Rickenbacker uses words ending in glow, spelled G-L-O, as color names, or color pattern names, I should say. For example, Maple Glow is simply what they call a guitar that doesn't have any color painted on it. It's just the shellacked wood, apparently maple. Fire Glow is a red-orange gradient that other guitar makers call Sunburst. A Rickenbacker Jet Glow guitar is solid black. Those are the main colors. There are some other kind of off colors they make, like a couple of shades of blue and green that they have strange names for. But anyway, I needed the Fire Glow, though. Oh, what a beautiful color scheme. Rickenbacker uses pretty elegant designs, too, not just the color schemes. On most of their instruments, the sound hole is a thin, claw-shaped sliver that curves parallel to the curvature of the guitar's body. There are some Rickenbacker guitars with a violin-style F-hole, but I don't really like those designs. I prefer the claw. The elegance also shows in the headstocks on the 12-string guitars. Most 12-string guitars out there in the world have six tuning pegs on each side of the headstock, but Rickenbacker's 12-string headstocks are pretty cleverly designed. They look like six-string headstocks. They have three tuning pegs on each side. So what about the tuning pegs for the other six strings? Well, they're hidden in the back of the headstock, so you can't see them without flipping over the guitar. Pretty slick. But why did I specifically want a Rickenbacker? Was it because it was what the Beatles used? No, that had nothing to do with it. It was the sound. There's a certain jangly chime that only a Rickenbacker can produce. I don't know if it's the type of pickups they use or what, but it's pretty special. Also, Rickenbacker guitars are pretty easy to play. Over the years, I tried out a few Rick 12 strings in music stores, and I noticed how easy the action was on the fingers. Even Lisa, who only a few times tried to learn a few chords, remarked about how easy the action was. The problem, though, the price. Rickenbacker instruments are not cheap. It makes me wonder if the Beatles had anything to do with it. John Lennon could afford one with basic financing long before the Beatles had their first hit. 
but why do they get to be so damn expensive? Going back to the Hate ashbury Music Center and its wall beautifully decorated with Rickenbacker guitars, when we went there in 2013, I stared dreamingly at that array of wonder. And as I was staring, Lisa said that it looked like the price tag on the Maple Glow 3712 was $1,200. Whoa, um, which is dirt cheap for a brand new Rickenbacker. Lisa looked at me and said, you have a job now, you know. <laughs> Indeed. I'd recently started a new job, my current one actually. And unlike with previous jobs I had, it actually pays a decent salary. And the previous July, I was mercifully laid off from my prior job, a job that I couldn't stand, ever. But th that's a story for another episode. But yes, I now had a good-paying job. My wife was hinting to me that now might be a good time to get my dream guitar. She was enabling me. It wasn't a Fire Glow 36012, but hey, maybe they could get one for me. Especially because the 360 is technically inferior to the 370. Certainly, if a 370 is 1200 bucks, a 360 will be a little bit cheaper. I asked the guy behind the counter two questions. Question one, would you ship to Chicago? He said, sure, we'll ship to Chicago. Hmm, okay. Uh, uh, question two, uh, could I see that Maple Glow 3712 over there? So he pulled it down and handed it to me, giving me a much better look at the price tag, which said... <gasps> $3,200. Ah! A dream deferred. It was the dot matrix font on the ticket that made the three look like a serifed one from a distance. And no way was I going to pay $3,200 for that damn guitar ever. I even asked the guy, why is it so freaking expensive? I remember before brand new Rick 12 strings cost $1,600 at the most. And from what he told me, Rickenbacker discontinued a lot of their guitars for a while, driving the price up, and then put them back into production with a high asking price, an obvious attempt to make some extra money. I learned a lot of weird things about Rickenbacker, and that day actually I found out that Haight-Ashbury Music Center is one of only two authorized Rickenbacker dealers in the entire state of California. I thought that was weird. But... I left Haight-Ashbury Music Center without a Rickenbacker 12-string, or even the promise of one. And again, I cheaped out and didn't get a theremin. But in the weeks following that San Francisco trip, that moment of Lisa saying, you have a job now, you know, echoed in my mind. I took that as a message that it's okay to drop a ton of money on a musical instrument, the enabler. So I did a search. Craigslist, eBay, local music stores, the works. What did I find? Guitar Center had a used Fireglow 36012 for sale in one of their Colorado stores. Free shipping to any guitar center for pickup. The price? Well, it sure as hell wasn't $3,200, I'll tell you that. In fact, it was a lot less. I decided now's the time to go for it. And yes, you'll come up with any number of reasons not to shop at Guitar Center, but hey, for almost 30 years, I'd been yearning to have my own Rickenbacker 12-string, and nobody else was offering me one with 24 months of interest-free financing. Hell, even with the small amount I was planning to put down, I wouldn't even need a year to pay it off. The Guitar Center store in Colorado called me to confirm the order and gave me some extra details. The original owner bought the guitar for his recording studio back in the 90s, but he never got around to using it. It was just sitting there collecting dust, so he just didn't want it taking up space. It plays perfectly, I was told, and is in excellent condition. Great, I said. Send it over. 
So the Rickenbacker 12 string arrived at the Guitar Center at Halstead and Diversey. I told Lisa to meet me there after work with the car. I didn't want to risk bringing my new prized possession onto mass transit and getting mugged on the way home. The clerk handed me the case and led me to an amplifier, and he asked me to test the guitar out and make sure it was satisfactory. I opened the case, and I just stood there and stared at my new, uh, used Rickenbacker 36012 in all its fire glow beauty. Without removing the guitar from its case, I just swept my finger down the strings and heard that famous E minor 7 add 4 chord that all guitar players know. Then I carefully removed the guitar from its case, sat down on the stool, plugged in the guitar, and played, uh... Well, for those of you who don't ever enter a store that sells guitars, let me tell you what goes on when there are people there trying out guitars. Usually, depending on the age of the person testing the guitar, you'll hear either the beginning of Stairway to Heaven, Day Tripper, or Metallica's One. Although, once in a great while, someone will play Smoke on the Water to try out a guitar. If it's a 12-string guitar, however, then things are different. Almost invariably, you'll hear the guy with a 12-string play the riff from the Birds version of Mr. Tambourine Man, and it's always a guy doing that, hence the word guy. And I knew this going in, so I was prepared. To change things up, when I tested this guitar, I played not Mr. Tambourine Man, but the opening of the Birds' other number one hit, Turn, Turn, Turn. Then I tried and failed miserably at I Call Your Name by the Beatles. Except for my playing ability, or lack thereof. The guitar sounded great. And on top of that, the hard shell case was included. I didn't know that. That made the price I paid, or financed as it were, even more worth it. Out of curiosity, I looked up the guitar's serial number on Rickenbacker's website. And apparently the guitar isn't from the 90s, as I was told, but it was manufactured in 2005. Heck, I didn't mind having a newer guitar than I thought. I think it took me only six months to pay off the balance, well within the 24-month interest-free period. This was five years ago, I think? Yeah, five years. It didn't take me long to learn about the idiosyncrasies of not only the guitar, but also just Rickenbacker in general. Not long after I got the guitar, I bought a DVD of Roger McGuinn. Um, yeah, same guy I called Jim McGuinn earlier. Uh, he went by Jim in 1965, but a few years later, he changed his middle name to Roger and started going by his new middle name, Roger. But anyway, the DVD had him demonstrating essentially the Karen feeding of Rickenbacker 12-string. If I remember correctly, I bought it specifically because I thought it might have a how-to on how to play Renaissance Fair, one of my favorite Birds songs. But no, it wasn't one of the songs he included. But one thing McGuinn mentioned that I never knew, Rickenbacker 12-strings aren't strung the way most 12-strings are. Remember, I talked about how a 12-string is arranged so that the lower four strings, E, A, D, and G, are paired off with one string in each pair being an octave away. Most 12-strings are arranged so that the higher octave string comes first and then the normal string. Well, Rickenbacker actually reverses that scheme on their 12-strings. The normal string is first and then the higher octave string. And that's one of the factors that contributes to the unique sound of a Rickenbacker 12-string. The weird thing is, though, the guitar I bought had the strings arranged the normal way. Hmm, I'd better restring this the recommended way, I thought to myself. And uh, that's when I learned a hard lesson. Restringing this guitar would be a pain in the butt. My model is one of those models that has an R-shaped metal tailpiece R for Rickenbacker, and that tailpiece covers the strings, holds certain strings in place. 
And the process of removing that thing and restringing is ceremonious at best, a blood-boiling profanity fest at worst. And from what my research told me, that R-shaped tailpiece is the bane of most diehard Rickenbacker fans' existence. The common lore is that if your R-shaped tailpiece is intact, don't get used to it, it will break sometime. Uh, by the way, it's still intact on mine. And to replace the R-tailpiece is pretty expensive. The replacement piece costs something like $100, $150. And to get one, you actually have to send your broken tailpiece to Rickenbacker, or else they won't send you a new one. Apparently, that R-shape is copyrighted or trademarked or something, and the lawyers at Rickenbacker are extremely strict about it. In fact, that's how you can tell whether your Rickenbacker guitar is a real or a fake. Look at the R-shaped tailpiece. The fakes will be in a different font. And actually, there's a guy on YouTube who likes to buy cheap, fake, Chinese-made Rickenbackers, or chickenbackers as he calls them. And what he does is he upgrades the hardware, the pickups, and the wiring and things to make the guitars sound a little bit closer to the real thing. And for a pretty cheap price, too, overall. He says that those fake Chinese guitars are actually pretty decent, although they're not the real thing. Some Rickenbackers don't use the R-shaped tailpiece, but a parallelogram-shaped tailpiece called a trapeze. And there's at least one third-party vendor out there who makes custom trapeze tailpieces specifically made to replace the R-tailpiece. And the trapeze is a lot easier to deal with when restringing, and the strings just attach right to the slots, unlike with the R. And the trapeze doesn't break, or at least isn't nearly as fragile as the R apparently is. Also, I saw a comment from someone on a forum, and he was claiming that he noticed an improved sound when he replaced his R with a trapeze. But regardless, what was my solution to the stringing issue? Just take it to a professional and let him do it for me. I also learned that most Rickenbacker 36012 models don't have saddle bridges made specifically for 12-string guitars. For those of you who don't know, the bridge is uh, what the strings rest on toward the bottom of the body of the guitar. An electric guitar typically has a bridge that has a movable saddle, as they call it, for each string to help intone the guitar and make sure that each individual string can be tuned as precisely as possible. But apparently, most Rickenbacker 36012 guitars, including mine, come with saddle bridges made specifically for six-stringed instruments, which means that each pair of strings has to share a single saddle, meaning that, well you can't guarantee the best possible tuning on each of the 12 strings. So when I had my Rickenbacker restrung properly the first time, I had the tech replace the saddle bridge with one specifically for 12 strings. And when I got the guitar back, I noticed a huge improvement in both sound and tuning. It sounded even noticeably better than when I first picked it up at Guitar Center. One other thing I learned about the Rickenbacker 36012 is that it's one of the models that has Rick-O sound. Guitars with this feature have not one but two input jacks, one standard, one labeled Rick-O sound. And the Rickenbacker people give you a dire warning to use only one of those jacks at a time. But what exactly is this Rick-O sound? Well, it's stereo output, really. The sound from one pickup goes to the left channel, and the sound from the other pickup goes to the right channel. Which means that if you want full stereo sound, then yes, you will need either two separate amplifiers or a stereo amplifier. And even if you don't have stereo sound, you could still benefit from that dual pickup output if you have an amplifier that has two inputs. Uh, the one I have does, so I can still hear that nice Rico sound, even though it's in mono. 
If you ask the folks at Rickenbacker about Rico Sound, they'll try to sell you their special box, assuming it's available. And they only cost 150 bucks. Come on, chump change. Or you can just get a Y-shaped instrument cable for like 10 bucks. Uh, I'll give you one guess as to which option I went for. So I learned to play guitar in the summer of 1987. I finally got my dream guitar in 2013 as a 38-year-old. George Harrison was only 21 when he got his first Rick 12-string. Then again, listen to George Harrison play, then listen to me play. Yeah, he deserved it at that age. Can't say that I did, or even at my current age. Regardless, though, I have my dream guitar, thanks to my wife, the enabler. Sadly, I don't play it nearly enough, partly because our third bedroom slash home office slash recording studio, where we keep our musical instruments, is in terrible shape. You'd think the inconvenience of having my dream guitar among the mess would be impetus to get the room clean, right? Still, though, I've recorded music with that guitar, and I was proud to play it at the Old Town School of Folk Music for a paying audience when several of my favorite people and I had the amazing opportunity to perform the entire Pet Sounds album. My Rickenbacker got the sound off during That's Not Me. And Sloop John B. Around Nassau Town we did roam Unlike the previous owner did, though, I don't keep this guitar waiting around to be used collecting dust. This guitar has been loved for almost six years, and it will continue to be, hopefully for many decades to come. So I talked about how I have an acoustic 12-string and I have the Rickenbacker 12-string now. So if you're thinking, oh, are you one of those guys who has a ton of guitars? No, no. Um, I have the acoustic 12-string, the PR350 Epiphone. I have the Rick 12-string. And I have a Fender Squire 2 Stratocaster, which from what I can tell from my own experience playing other guitars and things, it's really, in terms of feel and sound, no different from a real Stratocaster. The only difference I could tell, it's a hell of a lot cheaper. I also have a Fender Squire bass. Actually, my wife and I got that as a wedding present to ourselves. So that's all the guitars that I have, actually. One reason I don't have a lot of guitars, I don't need a lot of guitars. They, they each have their specific purposes. And also, I don't have a hell of a lot of room to put a lot of guitars. The only thing is uh, I may consider... Like if I'm ever completely debt free and I still have a reliable income at the time, maybe I'll consider a Fender Jaguar. I love the sound those things make, but not enough that I'm going to rush out and get one. But anyway, having said that, I think it's time to wrap up this uh, pretty long episode. And I thank you all for hanging with me to uh, listen to it. And of course, I also thank the wonderful Lisa for her undying support. And I also want to thank the city and people of San Francisco who may not know it, but they are beautiful. And so is their city, to borrow the words of a 20th century British philosopher. And of course, I thank you all for listening. Um, I think I already did that. Eh, can't thank you enough. 
And uh, you can reach me online at autobio at schnookpodcast.com. That's my email address. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at schnookpodcast. And I'm on Facebook as well. Look for Autobiography of a Schnook. And um, yeah, if there's anywhere else that I should be, just let me know. Uh, if you don't find this podcast on your favorite podcast, um, catcher, provider, whatever, let me know and I'll see what I can do about that. See if I can uh, put it uh, to good use on your favorite podcatcher. If you enjoy this podcast, please tell your friends, your loved ones, your family to listen. If you hate this podcast, tell your enemies to listen. But whatever you do, just keep in mind that the good goes around. And in honor of my friend Jeff, make sure that the good continues to go around. Guys, check your man parts. Women, please keep up with everything you need to get checked to keep healthy. And we can enjoy life. All the best, my friends. My friends.